Next up on Talk Zone is Corporate Talk with Charlie and Eva. Are you concerned about your job? Concerned about losing it? Concerned about not having the tools needed to reinvent your career or to reposition yourself in the workplace? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, or even if you just want to be a part of the workplace improvement revolution, then join the conversation right now on Corporate Talk with Charlie and Eva. Now, here are your hosts, Charlie and Eva. Okay, welcome everyone to Corporate Talk with Charlie and Eva. Today is November 28th, post-Thanksgiving. Yes, happy Monday after Thanksgiving. Right. Um, the mission of our show is to collaborate and make a difference, right? Um, if we're concerned about our jobs, our career, our future, what can we do collaboratively to make that concern go away? Right. Right. Um, we're kind of all in this together and our companies need us now more than ever, but they need our A game. So that's what we try and do whatever we can to nurture that A game. And so when you say A game, what do you mean? Well, you want to be a leader of yourself. You want to remain grounded in the workplace and you want to lead with your behavior. You know, uh, most likely we're all good at what we do. Mm-hmm. Right. But in the workplace, we get in our own way. We do. And um, I think if we water that down a little bit, um, many things happen. Trust grows. Opinions are asked of you. You become a go to person um, and you become relevant. And that is relevance regardless of your job description. Well, and I think that a lot of people are struggling to at work as we've talked to many people and we ourselves have been in the corporate workforce for a number of years. Um, and what we found is, is that a lot of times, you know, people feel that they're not being heard. And I think recently what we're just t- telling everyone now and our blogs are kind of, you know, speaking to that is that we're all in this together and it's time to stand up together. Yep, it's time to stand up together. Right. You know what? It's always been time to stand up together, but now more than ever. Now more than ever, yes. Um, I want to take a step back. Um, man, we have a guest today that is just off the charts. Um, and you know, it's funny because um, I do remember meeting and speaking with her, um, and it's very relevant in today's some of it anyway, in today's unfortunate times. But today's show has meaning and value for every single person with an ear. Yes, it absolutely does. And I'm really excited for this guest today. Um, our guest today, Gwen, is amazing. And we are going to be talking about terrorism. Yeah, I mean... I- and how she actually and her team prevented a suicide bombing in England, which is just amazing, by yeah. recruiting law enforcement and the Islamic community. This is CNN stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, I should say the Muslim community. I got that wrong. And, right. And it's really um, a global thing, right? Yes. So, okay, let's hear from the source directly. We would love to introduce... Our very special guest, Professor Gwen Griffith Dixon. Gwen, are you with us? I'm with you, all the way from London. Hello, Charlie and Eva. It's great to be talking to you. Yeah, you know, um, 
We're so glad you're here. Yeah. So Gwen, I was, I was, we were talking before the show, Eva and I, and I was remembering when we met, and I was like, "What? That's what you do?" <laughs> you know. Um, so, and I didn't honestly think I could describe it competently. So I just introduced you, and maybe you can share a little bit about your organization, which I will mention the Lokohai. Did I get that right? It's Lokohai. It's a Hawaiian Lokai. word. So you're not expected to know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Nobody does. Lokohai. I mean, it's... from Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, it's just incredible. So maybe share up front a little bit about who you are, what you do, and, and of course, something about your organization. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I originally was very much a kind of gentle, peace-loving kind of person and not someone who was looking to go into the world of counter-terrorism and violence and espionage or all that sort of thing. I didn't even read, like, thriller novels. I've not written a thriller novel, but <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't kind of set out in life being interested in that. I was interested in harmony between people and interfaith stuff and growing up in Hawaii, which I did, it's a very culturally, racially, religiously mixed place, and I always loved that. I loved being at home with other um, people's families, other cultures, other kinds of food, other kinds of dance, other kinds of other languages, other temples, or whatever. Um, so that was really my world. And then 9/11 hit, and suddenly my close connections with, in particular, the Muslim community, made me kind of dangerously hot property. And um, I got kind of uh, pressed by the police to get involved, and I wanted nothing to do with it until I met some really, really trustworthy police and ended up just kind of getting dragged in as much to kind of support my friends and colleagues in the Muslim community who were just going through a terrible time, um, as well as wanting to stop the violence and myself thinking, it's horrific what's, what's happening. So I kind of got dragged in by the heels um, basically, because um, I and the people I recruited to work with me were trusted by both sides, not necessarily always liked, and you know they knew they couldn't co-opt us uh, if we didn't completely agree with them, but they knew that we were what we were fighting for, striving for. So I ended up actually leaving um, university world at least for a while, <clears throat> nearly ten years, just to kind of do this full time, and we set up Lokahi which is a Hawaiian word which means sort of balance and harmony. Um, we set it up to kind of combine a kind of good quality thinking, you know, like the best you get in the academic world without all the ivory tower bit, um, but with real kind of street-level hands-on action, um, because in a sense, I hate to say once you get a taste for it, but once, once you get involved and you realize you can make some kind of difference, even if it feels small, uh, you kind of have to go on. And um, the day that a senior policeman called me up and said, well, you can't tell anyone this, but uh, you saved an unknown number of lives today. I just put my head down on my desk. Well, that's not something, you know, professors get told very often unless they're in medicine. <laughs> and I'm not in medicine. So we just ended up getting very much hands-on creating whatever projects we could think of that were making a difference. Some of them were on the campus. Some of them were... Um, bringing together police and Muslim communities, kind of like, I hesitate to, to raise this subject, but some of the issues going on with policing in America and minority communities, Black Lives Matter or people 
not liking that that term or that organization you know the the, the anguish on both sides you know we had a a less violent version of that happening here, but serious mistrust on both sides. So that was a key issue we wanted to tackle. And uh, we ended up setting up and managing the kind of nationwide, um, people call it de-radicalization, which is a horrible word. But it's really programs to intervene with young people who are getting sucked into being recruited to be terrorists and intervening before, you know, before they start all the way down that path or before they commit the act of violence rather than just, you know, we've got to spy on people, we've got to turn people in, we've got to arrest them. It's kind of, no, we've got to prevent them <laughs> getting into that that problem and, and different kinds of programs to do that. So that's a kind of sampling of the stuff that we've, we've done for the last 10 years in this area. But, okay, so when you were first approached by the authorities for assistance, I mean, what made them come to you? Yeah. I, actually, that's a very good question, and I must go back and ask the guy someday. <laughs> In the first case, uh, it was someone who knew the work I was doing. Well, there were two things. I mean, originally, Tony Blair and his office in the prime minister's office, when he was still prime minister, became aware of my work with Muslim communities. So I got roped in for a few things that were more about just giving advice and um talking about educational programs and and things like that. But then one day, uh, someone in special branch, as they call it here, which is a kind of specialist anti-terrorism unit, uh, I, got a, I got a note from my PA saying, oh, someone from special... It's quite a scary word here. It's a bit like FBI might be, you know, your average person going, oh, who are these people? So I got a note from my PA saying, someone from special branch wanted an appointment with you. Can you give him a call? And I said, well... What's it about? And he said, she said he wouldn't say. So well, I'm not. I'm not going to kind of give an appointment to someone who's not telling me what it's about. So I threw it in the rubbish, rubbish can, which is a bit naughty of me. And I did that, I think, about three times before he finally turned up. And he was the sweetest man. I just couldn't believe it. So he won my trust. But he wanted my help you know, initially with um, a colleague who had been falsely accused. And he thought this person could do really good work. But... Um, we wanted to kind of my help to help support this person to rehabilitate this person, and um, and then when I'd kind of worked with him, he started going around making introductions to all sorts of different branches, our equivalent of you know the foreign or State Department, um, well, the kind of equivalents of DHS, State Department, Interior, that those sorts of departments in Washington. These are the, the London versions. So I suppose the word kind of got around that way. And I suppose one of the things about us was, especially in those early days, just after 9-11 and just after what happened here, 7-7, a few years later, um, it's not like people knew exactly what to do and then they wanted someone to do it. They just, no one had an idea. I mean, just didn't know what to do. And so we kind of had to invent the answers, really. So I suppose that's why we became, partly because we could be trusted, partly because we were good at it, but also because... Um, I have many, many weak points, but imagination is sort of my one of my strong points. And I was good at dreaming up what what the answer, what the project might be from scratch. They just said, this is a problem. How do we deal with it? And I just invent something, and it doesn't always work, but some of them, some of them did. It's <laughs> unique um, skill set, and I remember thinking and asking the same when we met. It's like, well, how? How do you know about this stuff, you know? And I think um, 
when you mentioned about being raised in Hawaii, I was going to interrupt and ask, is, is Hawaii really as diverse as you described? Yes, it is. Um, it does, I suppose it has changed. It's probably changed a lot. When I grew up there, um, probably, yeah, white people were definitely in the minority, just in sheer numbers terms. Uh, the largest ethnic group was actually Japanese, but no one was in an overall majority. That doesn't mean that there weren't power structures and hierarchies, because sadly you kind of find that more or less anywhere you find human beings, I suppose. But it was very, very diverse. And now I think another generation on, what you have are fewer and fewer people that are just one race. So, you know, I grew up, we you know all my peers have grew up being pretty, I don't mean race blind, but... Um, there wasn't any sense that I would be expected to mate with my own group, if I can put it crudely. We all just dated anybody. And so there are more and more people who are just lots of mixed ethnicities. So it's it's become intense, more and more diverse, but also more and more blending. And um, it does feel very different to uh, what we call the mainland, I think. Um, and I don't mean that in a hostile way, but it just has a very strong sense of its own culture into which... Um, American culture has come rather than it being American culture with a southern twist or a Boston twist or a New Yorker twist. You know, it's a, it just feels like a very different culture in which American culture is part, but not the whole thing. Um, so I suppose it just kind of got me used to not, they're not being like one dominant group and then all these difficult little minorities. It's more like we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing to me how how easy you deal with all of this expertise. Um, yeah. It's just something. I think um, we will dive into more. We're going to take a break first. Um, but I just want everybody to understand who we have here. Gwen Griffith Dixon is a renowned professor, author, and speaker. She has become a reluctant expert in religious extremism and counterterrorism particularly concerned to support and empower communities. She's also the director of the Lokahi Foundation, an independent research organization and social impact charity, which create and created and ran the only community program to prevent terrorist, terrorism. I mean, it's just incredible. And she's written a novel. Which we'll get to as well. Yeah. To me, the novel is like, you know, a, a therapeutic outlet for you. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Please, everyone, stay with us. We're going to learn a lot more. This is Corporate Talk with Charlie Eve and our very special guest, Gwen Griffith Dixon. We'll be right back. CARE Certification in the Workplace is the award-winning shared leadership training seminar that will revolutionize your career and position you as the go-to person in your organization regardless of your job description. CARE is the acronym for Courage to Take Action Relevant to Everyone. This means your new workplace mission is to deliver results for the good of the company but not at the expense of others. Up until now, CARE certification was only available through company-sponsored seminars. 
But now you can become CARE certified in the workplace on your own time. Order Module 1 today and begin the transformation. There's unlimited opportunity in the workplace today, provided you have the right strategy. Becoming CARE certified is the right strategy. For more information and to order, go to charliespeaking.com. That's charliespeaking.com. And now, let's return to Corporate Talk with Charlie and Eva on TalkZone.com. Our guest today is absolutely amazing. Gwen Griffith Dixon is a professor of philosophy and religion. She is also, because we, we kind of touched on it earlier, she's also an author of a novel called Bleed Back. And um, she was born and raised in Hawaii, and she's fascinated by different faiths and cultures, and she created the Lokahi um, organization, which was the first community program to prevent a suicide bombing in England. Sorry, it's the Lokahi Foundation. And she ran programs that created partnerships between police and Muslim communities around Britain. You know, it's just, your story is so amazing, because when we think about the fact that you were a professor of philosophy and religion, but yet you were the one that was chosen to help um, start kind of stopping some of these terrorist attacks. It's really just amazing how you were chosen to do this, right? Mm-hmm. So you make it sound so easy, but oh my gosh, what a huge task. Where did you even know where to begin? Yeah, it, it, in some ways I should say it's scary, but um, I can be the sort of person to have anxiety, not anymore, but I used to be kind of that sort of gentle, sensitive, imaginative person who gets anxiety attacks really easily. <laughs> so it's not like I'm some thick-skinned, really, you know, um, really tough person, you know. Um, but I don't know, once you get into it, there is a kind of energy, there's a kind of unstoppable feeling you get because the stakes are so high, I suppose. I mean, I'm not claiming anything about myself. I'm saying if, you know, look at what's being dangled out in front of you. On the one hand, a lot of people can die. On the other hand, it's up to us to make a difference. And I think also a lot of people like me who have no involvement with policing or government, you kind of think the experts are there. Um, and they all know what to do, or you're angry at them because they're doing the wrong thing because you're the opposite. You're from the opposite political party, or whatever. But uh, you kind of think, yeah. So there's some real experts there, and they really know. And one of the things that, no disrespect, but really did scare me was uh, getting in very close to all the experts in in these uh, service services and agencies, and thinking they have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. They're not experts. They're not amazing, brilliant people, and all the rest of us civilians can sit back and and we're okay. It's like if it's not down to us, um, we're in trouble. So I suppose it energizes you. I mean, that's a positive. It energizes you to think, well, who am I? On the other hand, I'm all I've got. <laughs> so what's the choice, really? You know, engage, take the risk, um, have the courage to make mistakes. But uh, the successes are going to be more important than, than the failures and the embarrassments. Well, and I loved what you just said about that you're prone to, you know, or you were prone to having some anxiety, right, that you were the gentle person. And it's funny because that's actually what I coach on because I have the same issue. And what I've been saying to everybody, and I think now it's more important than ever, and that's why I love that you're here because this is so timely, is that, 
each of us has something to share, and especially those of us that tend to be sensitive. I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you brought to the table was that sensitivity was really key because you understand what's going on with people. You feel that. You feel the vibe in the room. You know how to actually approach people, and that's what made you so special when it came to this. Yeah. Interview, but I completely, a hundred percent, agree with you, Eva. Um, I think highly sensitive people are the most wonderful, special people in the world, but they're often the ones that kind of can lack confidence about that uniqueness and that specialness. Because let's face it, the kind of the world, including the corporate world, doesn't always value that, and that's. Um, one of the reasons I really love the story of how he prevented a terrorist attack, maybe we can get to that later, but, but it wasn't something hard-hitting, you know, and tough. And we, we kind of tend to think, um, yeah, niceness is great, but at the end of the day, if it's not being solved, you really got to get tough and go in there and, you know, swing your axe. And it was in this situation, it is actually the opposite. I mean, that high sensitivity is really indispensable. It does need to be backed up by a kind of toughness. But that toughness, I don't know if you feel this in your coaching. I'd love to hear your experiences. But I feel the toughness that you need in these situations, whether it's a corporate one, a family one, something in a workplace or a school, or for that matter, counterterrorism, the toughness you need is not aggression. It's truth. And it's seeing the truth and being willing to take a stand on the truth. And no matter how gently, just not being shoved off that standpoint of holding to the truth. You may not say it if it's not tactful, but you're not going to be deflected from it. And that's, I think, something that highly sensitive people can manage because we're sensitive to, to truth-telling. And I can say one of the things politically that's disturbed me, both sides of the Atlantic in our political situations, is who cares about the truth anymore? I'm quite frightened by that. In fact, that's my next book, Truth and it's really in a Narcissistic Age. <laughs> It is. It's it's really disturbing. And I think for those of us, it's disturbing for everyone. But I know for those of us that's highly sensitive, I mean, you can feel it out on social media. The highly sensitive people are just like, oh, I got to hide when no, this is the time for the truth to come to light. And I love what you're saying, because it's it is so true. I find it with myself and now I coach on it. Because when we stand in that truth and don't let ourselves get dissuaded, that's when we really make the impact, when we really understand that, yeah, this is the truth, and we don't have to be the loudest one in the room, but we're the ones that stand in that integrity. It makes such a difference. So let's let's go ahead and talk about that suicide bombing, because... I love what you're saying about this because all you hear is we got to be more aggressive, we got to be more aggressive, we got to be more aggressive, and you're saying the opposite, and you stopped it, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was an amazing experience because it was, um, in some ways, it started out as a very ordinary experience. Actually, it started out as a kind of of out-of-control, disorganized experience. (laughs) Mm. We had this program that I I wrote um, where we got uh, Muslim communities, not just the Muslim communities, but that was uh, the, the largest proportion of it. Anyone who felt, you know, we felt could could contribute, um, and police uh, together in a room. We'd take them away for a weekend or a day. Uh, the weekend ones are brilliant because you'd actually stay in a hotel. The, the mm-hmm. government paid for the whole thing, um, so people were kind of out of their normal context, which is a good thing. Um, and then we take them through this program where we wrote basically a 
like a short story, very short, with different chapters. Um, and one side of the story was told from the point of view of a senior investigating officer for the police of a terrorist attack, starting off with him getting some very vague, very minimal intelligence through from Pakistan, uh, the intelligence services in Pakistan, who don't always have a great reputation. So there's lots of interesting things you can talk about there. Um, and then another story told from the point of view of a youth worker uh, who is Muslim, who is running a sort of community center, and there is a young guy there who's saying stuff. So it starts out kind of very normal and ordinary, and then um, you give a bit of information, and then you'd leave it like hanging. Okay, you need to make a decision. What are you going to do now? And then we'd break into small groups around tables, a uh, mix of Muslim and, and police around the table, or people who are both, of course. They're uh, Muslims in the police service, of course. Um, and then we'd just all together, not quite like role play, because no one has to do the embarrassing acting bit, but all together, okay, we are Nadim, what are we going to do? Or we are a police officer, what are we, what are we going to do? We're going to stop a guy at the airport, we're going to arrest him, we're going to put him under surveillance, what are we going to do? And we also had some expert police people briefing us so they'd be completely briefed on the law and what the law would allow you to do, because a lot of people don't actually know. And those guys are great. I mean, one guy I really loved, he stood up and he held out the latest <clears throat> terrorism act, a bit like our version of the Patriot Act in the U.S., and said, this new law gives me powers I don't think I should have. <laughs> and that kind of honesty, you know, talking about taking a stand on the truth, that was really appreciated by Muslim communities. So, wow, that's interesting. Okay, tell us what, what you're allowed to do. Yeah. So we, they knew what... Um, what the boundaries were that they could do in terms of what this police guy could do when they made their decisions, they made up decisions. But the community also would be briefing them and saying, well, you can't do that. What about his cousin in Pakistan? And the guy would say, well, we're in Yorkshire. What does Pakistan have to do with it? Oh, you don't understand how the family thing works. I mean, it's international. And you do this to someone here, the family in Pakistan is going to be so shamed uh, in their community. It's like, whoa, I didn't understand that. So it was really interesting. They taught each other. They shared their experiences. Um, Muslims who, you know, innocent people who had a hard time at the hands of the police would come out with it. The police would really get it. The police would talk about how hard it was, what they were trying to do. And, you know, a lot of people could die if you get it wrong. And the Muslims mm -hmm. really got it. So it was a really interesting experience where they understood each other. They realized the difficulties that each other was facing. They would often start with not even wanting to be in the same room and huge distrust and hostility. By the end, it was like hugs and business cards. And, and we always ended with a little exercise that kind of got them thinking about what was their utopia? When it's all, what kind of community and society do they, do they want to have? And it always amazed people that they basically came up with the same list. They couldn't believe that each other wanted what they wanted. They all wanted the same things. And then we'd work on the action plan of how to get there. Well, one time we went through all this, but it was, was not starting well because at the time this was start, none of the Muslim community had turned up. The police had been really good trying to organize it, really embarrassed, and they're all on their cell phones calling their contacts, saying, where are you, where are you? You know, they brought these guys up from London all the way to Somerset, and, you know, where are you guys? So they turned up about an hour late. We were frantic because we were trying to re reorganize the whole timetable, which was really tight. They turned up and they kind of quietly said to me, well, you know, we did tell them. We all work in the kind of takeout mm -hmm. food and taxi. Gwen, you're food. cutting in and out. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you still with us? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? 
You want me to call yes, you back on another phone? Yes, we can phone? hear you now. Oh, you can hear you now. Great. Okay. Off down by the window. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they turned up very late, but they kind of privately said to me, if only they'd listened to us, we tried to explain. You know, we all work in the takeout restaurant industry and we work in the, ta- you know, the minicab taxi industry till three in the morning on a Friday night. You know, we can't get here at nine in the morning on Saturday. So it was the first lesson there was, you know, listen, listen to your community. Um, but what actually happened that none of us knew at the time was one of the young guys who was dragged there very much against his will, who didn't trust the police at all, knew someone. Uh, this is in a town called Bristol here. And he knew someone that he was kind of uneasy about. Um, he said some kind of really aggressive stuff. But then, you know, nowadays a lot of people do. A lot of people are very angry at America or whatever. A lot of Muslims were. So... Um, it wasn't totally out of an ordinary. He had a, had a sort of bad gut feeling, but you don't go, you know, reporting on someone you know just because you have a strange gut feeling. Yeah, you know, marks on his fingers, but he said it was chemical burns because he was a chemistry student. So, you know, what would you do? You, know, you wouldn't go and criminalize someone when you don't trust the police and how they're going to handle it and what kind of trouble everyone's going to get him. Well, when he's talked about it, basically what happened was he... His personal story was the same story that I had fictionally written of someone who has concerns about someone in the community and doesn't know whether to go to the police with them or not. And around the table, as we did the kind of role play, the police were all by the by saying how they would handle it if someone came forward with their concerns. And he listened and he thought, well, I could live with that. And then spending the weekend with them, he came to trust them. And so where he, you know, where he was by Sunday night was not where he was Friday night. And he thought, well, actually, I could go and talk to them about this. So he went in, they talked it over, and they realized, my God, this is something really serious. And so within, like, 48 hours, they'd mounted a a raid on the the guy's apartment, and they found the suicide vest hanging in the closet. They found the explosives in a takeout plastic sort of Tupperware-type container in the fridge. Wow. And mobile phones made into a detonator in the drawers, and he was just about to go and bomb, <clears throat> sort of suicide bombing in this big shopping center in Bristol. And we were like just hours away from carnage, um, which was an wow. amazing experience. And one of the nice things about it, which no one else would care about, but I cared about, and the police cared about, and the Muslims cared about, was that they bonded so much over the weekend. And media is such an issue. Um, well, we, you have the same experience in America, I think, but it's a real grievance over here how um, the less responsible end would kind of try and stir things up. Um, and so what the police and the Muslim communities did before they did anything else, they didn't just um, release the information. They held a joint press, press conference where the mm-hmm. mosque leaders were all on the stage with the police communities. They put their statements condemning it, the Muslim leaders' statements condemning it on the police website. You couldn't get a piece of paper between them. They were completely kind of united. And there was no backlash, no anti-Muslim backlash, which is always a risk when these things happen, as a kind of consequence of them just spending this time together and forming this really positive, trusting working relationship. Is united. Right. And, you know, what an amazing story. And we have to take our second break, but when we come back, I want to talk about how that ended up um, a little bit more, especially about how tight 
that um, the Muslim community and the police were. Stay with us, everyone. This is Corporate Talk with Charlie and Eva, and our guest today is Gwen Griffith-Dixon. We'll be right back. Let Charlie Labosco show you how to revolutionize your presence in the workplace. Charlie is looking to improve the workplace, and by that he means your relevance in it. Charlie has over 40 years in the corporate workplace. He has seen the unbelievable, mind-boggling, off-the-charts changes in technology, but no real change in our day-to-day and sometimes toxic workplace behavior. Charlie's mission is to revolutionize the workplace by providing the training and the tools needed to lead any organization regardless of your job description. For more about Charlie and how to be a part of the workplace improvement revolution, visit charliespeaking.com. That's charliespeaking.com. Let's get back to Charlie and Eva for more corporate talk on Talk Zone. And, you know, I just want to go right back to what we were discussing. Um, but let me just say first, um, since we're three quarters into the show already, I want to give a plug, Gwen, for this incredible novel called Bleedback. Just tell us briefly how we can get access to that book. Oh, uh, thank you. It's on Amazon.com, Kindle and paperback. So it should be pretty easy to get. It's just come out, and you always kind of worry that the distribution's not set up, but it seems to be working. (laughs) It seems to be working on Amazon. If people want to read the reviews, there are more reviews, I think, on Amazon.co.uk. So far, I think it's got more UK readers. It's not too surprising because I launched it here. Um, so they can have a look and see if it's their kind of thing or not. But it should be easy to get on Amazon. I think it's on Barnes & Noble as well so far. You should be able to order it through a bookstore, but it's probably not being stocked yet. Um, congratulations. There's no end to your contributions to society. Right. Um, <laughs> just very, very generous of you, Charlie. <laughs> brief question on the book is um, the name, Bleedback. Is a very um, enticing name. Is it? Does it have any significant meaning? Yeah, it, it gets layers and layers of meaning as the book goes on, kind of smeared onto it by different characters. And it starts. The actual word starts from a Russian character, so it's like a a kind of mistake in English. Um, he thinks it's an English word, but it's not. Where it wasn't before. Um, it's a kind of English word, I think, in plumbing or something, you know, if something seeps back from a tube. That's not, that's not what he meant. It's not what I meant. And it's not the CIA term blowback. Bleed back. What he means by bleed back is this thing that happens that, you know, you may have a foreign war or foreign policy over there. And uh, certainly in the earlier years of this century, people were, I think, a little, little overconfident that they could just go wage war somewhere else. Uh, but the bleed back idea is actually it bleeds back home. Um, and you could kind of sum up one aspect of the book as saying what happens when the war on Iraq comes home. Uh, and that's what he means by bleed back. So he's talking to a, a British security official saying, yeah, well, but how are you going to manage to bleed back from all this? Interesting. And, um, man, you know, and going back to the conversation we were having, um, am I stretching a little bit when – you referenced the Pakistani saying, but wait, 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 
you guys don't get it. Back home in Pakistan, the family's going to be devastated. Isn't that a form of bleed back to them as well? Yeah, that's brilliant, actually. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. You've just given me an idea for a blog post or a talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of bleed back in, in that direction, that the issues that we have going on um, in the West then bleed back and affect people's lives back back home. And I think um, I think there's probably a bigger level on which the politics happening over here um, starts to affect people in Pakistan, in in Syria, in Iraq. It's not only their issues, I think, that is uh, that's driving the war on terror or terrorism. It's our issues as well, probably. It's um, usually a good principle, at least, to start with examining whether that might be true, whether it's not just them, it's us in any kind of relationship. And I think that's a, a brilliant observation. Thank you. Um, so... You know, I just want to repeat here that the result of this community program, which was um, initiated by the Lakahi Foundation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the result of this first community program actually prevented a suicide bombing in England. I mean, that is headline news. Well, and what I love is that it was a partnership between the Muslim community and the police, right? They were tight when they got up there to talk about it in the media. Right. You know, there wasn't any fighting between them, which I think is so key what you were saying. It was right before the break. That, talk about that just a little bit more. Yeah, it's like a simplicity, bring it down, like the word community kind of says it all, right? a true community. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think the really best, I mean, we call it over here community policing, the best approach, and um, recognizes, you know, police are members of the community. Uh, Mm. They may may or may not turn up to these events in uniform, but they are already members of the community, and they have a stake, or they should have a stake and recognize they have a stake in living side by side with the rest of us, and it's clearly so easy, as we see in so many countries, for this kind of aggression and opposition and fear and hostility, you know, the other side is the enemy, whichever side you're talking about, the other side is the enemy. One of the things that just astonished me about this whole program, and after that, this was like only about, I think, the fourth one we did. Well, after that, it was like everyone had to do one. It almost became mandatory in in Britain. So we went all over the country. About 2,000 people went through the program. Um, Just about every police force in the country ran one. And some more than one because they found it so helpful. Maybe, you know, we need to do this again for people who weren't here kind of thing. So it was brilliant. But I didn't know in advance. I can't say I designed it to have these effects. I had to go back and study and analyze why did it work so well. And it really translates into other things. I've taught it in corporate settings. I've, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can uh, create this. And you can certainly create it for, like, racist extreme or far right. I just got a blip. Can you still hear me? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Um, but one of the things that amazed me about it was how fast change can happen. Because when you think about deeply entrenched hostilities where there's never been a positive experience of each other, and you think, how many years? Oh, Lord. How many years have we got to go down this road? How many months at best? Can, how long does it take to change attitude and hearts and minds? Literally, I mean, we've we got it down in one day. We can do it in two days, which is better, but we can do it in one day. And it just completely, completely changes most people's attitudes in a day. 
And lasting as long as you keep the relationship up. If you don't, and we did sort of follow-up research, and even people that weren't followed up with still were more positive. But the real returns happen like any other relationship. You keep it going. Um, it wasn't like a one-day wonder. And I still kind of, we're not actively doing it, and I kind of want to look to other countries that could really benefit from it. But you, I still look back and wonder how, I don't know any other situation where change has happened so quickly. You know, a kind of deep emotional change. And There's, kind of, you know, ideas change. People learned a lot. It was a kind of interesting mix of the kind of mental and the emotional. Maybe that's part of the secret. Well, there's there's some extreme skill that is kind of being swept under here. And that is when you establish this community, it's a community of equal voice. And I believe that's what made the trust come out. And that's why it would take one day to make a change, right? Yeah, I mean, gosh, you're perceptive, you two. Um, and I wish all the police had got what you've got so quickly without even experiencing it. One of the sad things that happened is when the kind of economic crash came out, and it's one of those things you see in the workplace. There's the jealousy. Everyone, oh, this is successful. I want to own this. So uh, the police kind of edged us out and said, well, we can do this cheaper. Instead of taking people to a hotel, we'll just make a video with the same information, show the video and answer questions. And you think, oh, once you failed to learn, it's about relationship, it's about communication, it's about spending that time around the table. Um, but as you say, we put in, which I think a lot of people got, and some of the more, the less person-oriented police didn't get. They thought it was about telling Muslims what to do. But um, what it really, it really is very intensive on the people running it. You can't just kind of turn up and say, okay, go to this room, and now we're having our coffee break. It was exhausting to run. And I used to invest, um, whoever was leading it, but um, <clears throat> say, for example, me, on when, when I was leading, I would invest so much time in just the kind of casual opening remarks. I always thought about it, being Hawaiian, as kind of building aloha, Room. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that everyone would understand what I mean, but uh, I think a lot of people outside Hawaii have heard the name Aloha, the word Aloha, which is that kind of giving love, selfless love, warmth. And I just try kind of in an almost like invisible way just to build in this sense of acceptance, a safe space, lack of judgment, openness, equality, respecting everybody. And I'd set some ground rules as well, but it was really, and also the community just signaling in all kinds of ways that I, I got it, um, that got what they were going through, and they were going to meet with kind of understanding here rather than suspicion. And yeah, it, right. You, you had to prove, you had to first get it yourself and then let the group know that you're, you care as well. Right? And that's right. And a lot of our um, conveners, we call them facilitators, to kind of light like the person that stands by the clipboard while everyone's brainstorming. It was much harder work than that. So our conveners, as we called them, were, were mixed. They were all sorts of different races, different religions. We tried to have it, kind of at least half of them be Muslim. Um, and we had Muslim police officers among the conveners. And there was one time where there was my um, Pakistani Muslim colleague who very definitely doesn't wear a scarf and is you know, very believing but very kind of uh, liberal and forthright. Whereas they, someone that looked to them like, uh, ooh, scary, traditionalist, Muslim, long, long beard, 
wearing the traditional mm. garb. And he was a special branch officer, so that really blew everyone's mind. <laughs> he was an anti-terrorist police officer. Then my Jamaican colleague, and then me, kind of white Christian, whole, you know, American accent. Everyone just looked at us and thought, what? <laughs> yeah, they just couldn't really pigeonhole us, which is really good because it kind of also makes the point of, you know, get beyond all that. Listen to everyone's experience, you know, just get over I- it. <laughs> It's definitely not leading with weakness. It's leading with strength as well, which is just incredible. We um, have to take our last break. Yes. Um, But we will be right back. Before I go to break, I just want to say what I learned today about bleedback. I mean, we have talk here about building this wall. And what about the bleedback, you know, from the people on the other side of the wall? I mean, what have we learned? You know, it makes no sense. But anyway... Um, stay with us, everyone. We will be right back. Charlie Labasco is an author, speaker, and trainer with over 40 years' experience in the corporate workplace. Contact Charlie today to interact, influence, and inspire others in your organization. Whether it's a one-hour keynote presentation or a five-day training seminar, Charlie is available to speak on many topics, including making a difference in the workplace, even as one person, building shared leadership teams, and his signature award-winning seminar, Care Certification in the Workplace. Charlie speaking at your organization will make a difference on day one. For more information and to book Charlie, go to charliespeaking.com. That's charliespeaking.com. Welcome back to Corporate Talk with Charlie and Eva on TalkZone.com. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Professor Gwen Griffith-Dixon. She is a professor, author, and speaker, and she created programs for the British Office for Security and Counterterrorism. And we're talking about how to work with communities and police in order to counteract terrorism. And one of the things that we wanted to talk about before we ended today, Gwen, because this show could go on for like four hours yep. and would be just, you know. And by 24, be a command center. <laughs> be a command center. <laughs> be terrific. There's so many different aspects that we want to hit on. Um, but one of the things that you talk about is like different ways that ordinary people can stop terrorism. And what do you see that? You know, how do you see just your basic person? Because so many times we feel so powerless and maybe we're not. Yeah, I'm more and more, to be honest, I'm thinking, you know, governments, police, that's all very well, but it's really up to us. And there are, it's not just that, you know, there are things that we can manage to do. I think there's things ordinary people can do that governments or police officers or the FBI can't do. We're actually empowered. Um, and in a sense, we're more empowered at the better end of the spectrum, like right at the beginning when, when it's easiest to intervene and deflect someone. Um, from a dangerous, violent path. And that's where the government, police, FBI, they don't have any reach. Um, they might be lucky to go into it from, from say, surveillance and kind of cyber cyber mm-hmm. terrain or from maybe an association map. They know someone's met so-and-so. But actually, uh, or even if they, they do, I mean, tragically, as the Orlando situation showed, um, they may even have had a report on someone and there's no criminal activity. They don't take it up, and that's 
uh, that's not a criticism. Uh, you don't want to arrest someone if there's no criminal activity. That's right. But one of the things that we've been able to do here uh, in Britain and ordinary people can do there is to intervene at that pre-criminal stage, especially when there isn't, you know, they haven't committed a crime, but, you know, the first crime they may commit is a massive suicide bombing. So, you know, why not get in there earlier, but in a way that's not getting them uh, a criminal record or getting them in trouble with the law or making them feel persecuted? So there's, there's various things ordinary people can do, starting with just creating strong local relationships, strong local connections. Um, there's all kinds of social ways you can do what we did in an intensive way in those programs bring people together and ask to hear their experiences, share experiences. One of the things I'd really like to do is create a kind of do-it-yourself version of this program, put it out through my website, and then support people. We could support people through, like, Skype mentoring to run their own groups, um, run their own uh, kind of discussion groups uh, in their communities. And to get to, I'm not really necessarily talking even about police and Communities, but I mean non-Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Hindu communities, um, atheists, doesn't have to be a religious thing, but uh, reaching out to people and getting to know people. One of the key things that ISIS or Islamic State, uh, even more than Al-Qaeda did, one of the main propaganda tools, recruiting things they do is telling, telling young people who are Muslim, your neighbors hate you, your neighbors suspect you, you can't trust them, they will turn on you. You can't live there. You can't live with non-Muslims in the West because someday, you know, nice though they seem now, all it takes, literally one said this, you know, he's on YouTube. He said it some years ago, but I shudder to think of it now. He says all it takes is a demagogue um, to whip up hate, you know, a politician to whip up hate against Muslims, and they will turn on you. And he said, uh, Bosnia, um, but, you know, we can each tour, look to our countries and say, could this be true here? So the best thing we can do is that's wrong. So give uh, young people who are beginning to feel, you know, whatever their community, it could be a racial issue, it could be an, edu you know, an educational level, um, people who are feeling alienated for other reasons and might turn into a shooter rather than a bomber. Give them positive experiences of what it's it, like to live with you. The Lokahi example taken globally and also, but locally, right? Exactly. Global and local. Uh, national, global, local. But it's and when you have those strong relationships, it does a number of things. One is, as I say, if anyone is actually starting to read the propaganda, they can say, well, hang on a second. You know, that's not true of my life. And the, you know, the recruiter for ISIS begins to lose credibility because what they're saying about this isn't true, so maybe they're just not telling the truth. The other thing you can do, of course, is notice if someone is starting to be vulnerable or at risk and disaffected, marginalized, um, so that you can actually... Intervene. We do have a program here you don't have. <clears throat> I'd love it if it was set up in America, if it's done in the right way. But we do have a program where people can refer people to get um, counseling. But a lot of mosques and Muslim organizations are actually already doing this in America um, so that they can speak to someone experienced who isn't going to judge them but also who, who can say, well, no, actually, that's not true. The Quran does not say that. No, that's not that's not the mainstream message of Islam. No, that's a kind of twisted argument. Or no, your Muslim non-Muslim -na non neighbors don't hate you. So you can, but they can only do that if 
people in schools and homes and workplaces recognize someone seems to be. I agree. About um, the authorities, and you're right that the authorities react after the incident, and and even then they go through their protocol, um, and it's it really doesn't help make things better, you know. And okay. but there's a problem with their recommendation to the people of if you see something, say something. This is. What you what you have developed is sort of if you see something, say something 2.0, and that is say it with the person, you know, yeah. be a with the people, not you know, I don't like what I see on the telephone, some to someone. Right, because I mean we've seen how that worked here in Cleveland, right? I mean they did that. It it wasn't a Muslim incident, but it was an African American incident where you know they saw somebody walking around with a toy gun and hey, you know yeah, he yeah. got shot right in. Walmart, right? So again, you know, what you really are talking about is building community to is, save lives. Well, yeah, I mean, to and for every because it's just like what you said in the beginning, Gwen. When these guys got together, at the end of the day, everybody wants the same things. We all want to feel safe. We all want to have, you know better hope for our children. We all want to live in a community together, right? And so, you know, what you're really talking about is just, you know, your all of your work is about building those bridges so that when we see somebody is at risk, we can help them. Just like if you see a child that's at risk that maybe is suicidal, you can help them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about not sticking our head in the sand anymore, but also it's not about, you know, pulling our head up out of the sand and coming out shooting. It's about, you know... Yeah, it's about love, right? It's about, it is. It's, I mean, that's the end of the day. And, you know, when, when those of us that are highly sensitive, and, and Charlie is in that pack, you know, when we talk about love, people will kind of poo-poo you. But as you've seen, I mean, you're the proof that it works. Yep. Yeah, it, it's sort of love and love and truth, you know. It's, it's my kind of simple motto in a way. But, I mean, I just go back to that incident and say, well, going in there hard-hitting and aggressively, people would be dead because that guy would have never, you know, the, the young man who came who didn't trust the police would never have reported the person. And he would have, uh, his name is uh, Ibrahim, Issa Ibrahim, who incidentally in prison, I think, because again, you know, some good interventions, he's changed. You know, they can change. You've seen, thank God, you know, where he went wrong, the error of his ways. And there's a changed person, which is fabulous. It also gives you some hope, doesn't it? But as you say, if, if you see something, say something, and the result will be, what, the person gets shot and they turn out to be innocent? Um, right. Very few people will really have so much evidence that you're sure the person's guilty. You just have a, an uneasy feeling, and our gut feelings can be pretty reliable if we're not too prejudiced. Um, and one of the things we found is that Muslim communities, of course, would report something, but where they would, they didn't want to report something until they were absolutely sure. And the, where the police wanted to report them was at the first faint suspicion. So they were a big way apart on that. A lot of our work was actually reducing that gap. But you can only reduce that gap if you trust how the police will handle it. I think that's one of the issues. Glenn, thank you so much. We are out of time, but we really, really appreciate oh, you coming on the show today and sharing all this information because it's so timely and so needed, and your work is amazing. We will and share as it. much as we can all week to help. Thank well, thank you so much. It's been a brilliant experience, and I've really enjoyed your own insight. I just could have spent an hour listening to you two. There's so much I wanted to ask about. 
uh, your, your own coaching and Charlie's making a difference as just one person. Um, well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yes. Do we have to connect. Yep. Thank, well, thank you so much, both of you. Yes. Take care. Take care. Thank you. And again, everyone, um, you can learn more about Gwen at bleedback.com or at the uk, which is L-O-K-A-H-I dot O-R-G dot U-K. And um, another great show. Excellent show, Gwen. Have a great week, everyone. This is Corporate Talk with Charlie and Eva. Bye.